actually, uh, I think this may be uh, our last time with Ksava Kabbalah because for the next three Thursday nights, we're going to do a Tishrei series. We're going to do Rosh Hashanah on my mind, Yom Kippur on my mind, Sukkot on my mind. So we're going to have a three-part series for the three important uh, days that are upcoming, and those are going to be on Thursday nights. And after that, it will already be Sukkot. And after that, I've got a new friend for the new year uh, whose identity has not yet been revealed because I haven't quite decided yet. But anyway, this is a coming attractions. So let's get to our subject. We are looking at Parsha's Kisavo. So please turn with me uh, to the Pasuk... Uh, in chapter 26, verse 15, it is, uh, if you've got the stone, Chumash, you'll find it on page 1070. Here, the Torah um, describes what's called vidui ma'aser, which is the declaration on the part of the householder, the farmer, really, uh, that he has given the tithes and the allocations that are intended for the different categories, for the poor, for the levy, for those who are in need. He is a, let's say, established landowner. He has uh, the bounty of the crop, and he uh, attests in the Beis Hamikdash that he has allocated it appro- appropriately. And then we have a very uh, a beautiful pasuk which concludes this section, and that is verse 15, Kesvav, Hashkifa mimo'on kad Look down, here it says, gaze down from your holy abode, from the heavens, uvareches amcha Yisrael, and bless your people Israel and the land that you've given to us as you've sworn to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. So the interesting thing, and that's where I'd like to begin tonight, is understanding the meaning of the word hashkifa. Hashkifa is related to the word lahashkif, which is to look or to gaze. Hashkafa, you may have heard that expression, outlook. And this is the first um, topic I'd like to take up tonight. And that gives rise to the uh, title of our shio, which is Glimpse, Glance, Gaze. So Rashi, not here, but Rashi in Parshas Vayera, which is the first time we find the word Hashkifa, or really it says Vayashkifu, Rashi there says that every instance of the word Hashkafa in the Torah, in all of the Tanakh, always is associated with uh, a um, negative evaluation, with a, um, let's say, a scrutiny that uh, bodes ill. And the example there in Parshas Vayera is the angels who visited Avram and Avraham and Sarah, they made their way from there to Sodom. And it says, They looked down, they gazed down at Sodom. And there Rashi says that every instance of Hashkafa is always bad news, with one exception. It's only The only exception is here. It says Rashi, because matnos aniim, gifts to the poor, providing for those who are in need, transforms the attribute of strict or harsh justice to one of favor and one of of compassion. So Ksava Kabbalah explains what is the meaning of the word hashkifa as opposed to two other words which we have, as we have in English as well, multiple words for viewing. So in Hebrew, we also have the word lir'ot to see, ri'iyah and habata, lir'ot and lahabit. 
So I just mentioned in English, we have a lot of words for seeing. We have see, look, view, gaze, glance, glimpse, and others as well. And Ksava Kabbalah explains the word re'iyah refers to viewing, which is accurate, but without attention to detail. And it gives a few examples of that, how the word re'iyah is associated with seeing, um, but it's like just an initial um, view without evaluation, without a meticulous assessment of what a person is viewing. Give some examples of that. He saw and there was a uh, well, a, a well in the field. And then later on, it says he saw that there were um, shepherds gathering around it, etc. The word habata uh, sometimes it's translated as to stare, but according to our friend for the year, uh, it refers to looking in a particular direction, like to turn to look. And the classic example of this is Lot's wife. It says, Vatabet ishtome acharav, that his wife turned around, look back, Mrs. Lot. You may remember that book by Ephraim Kishon, the famous Israeli humorist. She looked back, she turned around to look. Now, it doesn't say exactly what she saw. It's just a kind of general look. You turn around and you just take a cast, uh, get a glimpse of of what there is to uh, to observe. It's like a glance, you could say. I'm not sure exactly what the difference between glimpse and glance is in English language, but this Haksava Kabbalah explains. Uh, we have Al-Tabit Acharecha, don't look behind. Mehabit El Elohim. it says that Moshe, when he was at the burning bush, he uh, shielded his face because he was afraid. Vayam Mehabit El Elohim. To, to look at God. It means even to turn in that direction, he was afraid to look. So that is Ri'ya uh, and Habata. And he says the proof of how the word Re'e suggests a more careful um, view than the word Lahabit, which is like to turn to something just to catch a glimpse of it, is a puzzle that says, Habit, you mean Ure'e, like turn to the right, and then see where it says re'e after lahabit. So lahabit is like when you first turn around to, to look at a vista or look at a person or look to see what uh, bus has just passed or something like that. You just see it in an instant. Ure'e means you give it more close attention. What is hashkafa? So this is his beautiful analysis. He says the word hashkafa is associated with what we might call in English to gaze. It means to examine, to scrutinize. It has attention to detail. That's why in modern Hebrew, the word for eyeglasses, which I've worn for many years, is mishkafayim, because mishkafayim allow a person to see with clarity, to see details, to read the small print, uh, or whatever the case may be. So Hashkifa refers to looking and to see even the details, to scrutinize. And he says, we find this in the Torah, Vayashkef Avimelech Ba'ad HaChalon. Avimelech gazed through the window, and I'm sure you remember what he saw. He saw Yitzchak and Rivka who were um, conducting themselves as a husband and wife. 
Uh, he was looking closely. Sisra. It says in the book of Judges that through the window, the mother of Sisra looked. She was scouring the countryside, the horizon. Remember, Sisra was the Canaanite uh, king uh, general who sought to uh, ravage the Jewish um, uh, forces and uh, it was Devorah the prophet SS who routed him and as a result uh, Sisera was not going to return but his mother was expecting him to come with much booty and spoils of war captives and all the rest of it it says Vayashkef Ba'an Hachalon Nishkafa Em Sisera because she was scrutinizing looking closely for signs of her victorious son returning from war which was not to happen he says also, Hashkifa is associated with looking from above to below, looking from a high vantage point at that which is beneath you. And also the one who sees, the one who gazes can see, but the one who is being observed and scrutinized cannot see, does not see the one who's looking at him. So the, the word Hashkifa is associated with that particular form of scrutiny. and. That's why he says that Rashi tells us in Vayera that the word Hashkifa is always associated with, uh, uh, like we said, a negative, um, exacting, judgmental scrutiny. Because when you look at something very closely, you'll always find some something defective. When you analyze in absolute detail with a magnifying glass, you're sure to find something which is uh, defective in some way, except when it comes to tzedakah, when it comes to charity, especially our farmer is declaring that he's given everything in accordance with the law. So then he can say, look down from your heavenly vantage point and bless the children of Israel, because we have acted in accordance with the requirement we've given generously we've given unstintingly unstintingly we have given for the benefit for the needs of those who are are uh, impoverished and therefore we are worthy of your blessing uh, so may it be for us so this is how Xavah Kabbalah explains uh, and okay I found that very interesting uh, when I when I read his analysis and it's also a classic example of his style in which he um, illuminates he clarifies the meaning of words which are similar to one another and explains how they are different and how they are used precisely and how the Torah's usage of the words conforms um, so perfectly to the intent and to the meaning according to the circumstances. Now, later on in the parsha, uh, if you look with me, not much further actually, but chapter 27, verse 2, the beginning of chapter 27, that's actually just one page on, if you've got the same chumash as me, page 1072. So there, uh, it says as follows, V'etzav Moshe v'zikne Yisrael ha'am lemor, Shamar es kol ha-mitzvah sh'onuchim etzavay eschem hayom. Keep the commandment that I'm giving you today. V'haya b'yom asher tavros ha-yarden el ha-aretz ha-shadonai lecha nosein lecha, nosein lach, it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan and you enter the land that the Lord your God has given. V'ha-kemosu lecha avanim gedolos. You shall establish for yourself, set up large 
stones or, or boulders, and coat them with a lime or um, plaster that will make it possible to write on them. So they've got to find uh, large stones, and they're going to use those stones not for building, but as a billboard, you might even say, to write upon it. Now, what are they going to write? Now, here's the amazing thing. The chasavta lehem, in the next verse, the chasavta, chasavta lehem is called all of the words of this Torah. So this is very problematic, and I have to say that I know I often tell you that until Ksava Kabbalah drew my attention to a certain nuance or observation, I had read it many times without noticing it. On this occasion, I did notice it. I mean, it jumps off the page. Is it feasible? Is it even plausible to write the entire Torah on on these enormous stones? How large could they be? Is it practical? Uh, so Ramban says, well, maybe they were very large. It says Gedolos, maybe they're huge. But even if you got the white cliffs of Dover, is it practical to write the entire Torah on those rocks? Or says Ramban, maybe it was Maasenisi, maybe it was something miraculous. It was microscript um, or some example like that. And it was uh, therefore possible to write the entire Torah. Even that, I mean, how did they read it? Did they make use of a microscope to read it? And what was the purpose of writing it like that? So Ibn Ezra, who is the rationalist, uh, quotes the uh, Gaon, probably means Sadi Gaon, and he says it refers to like the Azharos. That the word Azharos, meaning warning, is a term for a kind of poetic composition that comprises a list of the 613 commandments, just as the Rambam has a, a list, a famous list, and others as well. So before the Rambam, we have uh, the Halachos Gedolos, Rabbi Huda Karaya. We don't know that much about him, but he lived in the 10th century in Egypt. And um, even before, around the same time as him, actually, we have Sadiqaun who also did the same. And these books have come down to us. They're available. And it is a kind of uh, condensation of the 613 commandments, an enumeration of them. It's written in poetic form, very uh, beautiful, very eloquent also a bit, uh, in some cases, abstruse. So that's what Ibn Ezra suggests. It means not the entire narrative of the whole Torah from in the beginning God created until the end of the Torah before the eyes of all Israel. It doesn't mean the five books of the Torah. It means this or, or, or a similar compilation of the Taryag mitzvahs. But, you know, even that goes on for quite a few pages if you consider that if even uh, each mitzvah is just... Um, you know, uh, uh, referred to in a single verse or even a single stanza, still is quite a lot. So uh, Ksava Kabbalah suggests that another proposal that he advances, maybe the reference is when it says, kol divrei es, the passage here says, uh, maybe hatorah hazos is a reference to the previous chapter versus um 16 to 19, a meaning, uh, that is to say, the immediate previous paragraph. So if you look at your Chumash, if you turn back, if you just look back to the previous few verses, maybe it's just that one paragraph, Hayomaze, etc., because there we do have a reference, the Shmar Kol Mitzvosav. It says the Shmar Kol Mitzvosav to keep all of his commandments. Uh, where does it say that? Yeah, at the end of verse 18, the, the end of Pasuk Yud Ches, it says, So 
it could be that where the Torah says immediately after that short paragraph, where we're looking at now, there's a reference to kol divrei ha-Torah. So perhaps it just refers to the previous short uh, passage of three or four verses, and that's the extent of it. That, of course, is possible to inscribe those uh, few psukim on stone or to write it. If you cover it with plaster, then you can write it even with a pen and quill or something like that. Okay, that is, um, you know, a, a, a realistic, a rational approach. The difficulty is what's the great importance of that group of, of verses? I'm sure if we look through it, we could speculate as to why it's significant. But prima facie, if the Torah says, kol ator hazos, kol ator hazos, difficult to understand how that short, um, not especially consequential passage would be the focus of that commandment. So Xavah Kabbalah, Rabbi Yaakov Tzvi Mecklenburg here, quotes his son, and uh, I think his son is called Shmuel. I'm not clear to me whether his son was a rabbi or perhaps perhaps not. Um, but he quotes his son, and his son has a good suggestion. He says, when it says kol divrei, when the Torah here says, sorry, when the Torah says, v'chasavte uh, is kol divrei ha-Torah hazos, the word kol, all, it could be that it refers to the word klal. Klal means a generalization like a, a headline or a principle of the Torah. Kol divrei, it could be that what the Torah means is you shall write the essential teachings of the Torah. And he suggests what it might be. Perhaps it refers to the three paragraphs of the Shema. The three paragraphs of the Shema, this is a Torah commandment, which we fulfill. It's obligatory for a man. I'm sure it's laudatory for a woman, but it's a mitzvah that a man performs twice a day to recite Shema in the morning and in the evening. And men or women, we all recognize the importance of the three paragraphs of the Shema. It refers to the oneness of God, the love of God. If you keep the commandments, then you will enjoy the benefits that will follow from it, reward and punishment. You've got in the third paragraph, uh, the reference to tzitzis, it says, if you keep all the commandments of the Torah. So he suggests maybe the reference is to a passage or here three specific passages, which comprise collectively the mitzvah of reciting the Shema. And there you have an encapsulation of the essence of the Torah. There's another suggestion as well, which is even a lot shorter. Maybe the first two of the Ten Commandments, belief in God and the refutation, the denial of polytheism. There is one God and there's a denial of all other gods. That is the essence of the Torah. That is the fundamental basis of the Torah. So perhaps that is the reference. And then he, uh, the author of Kabbalah, uh, proceeds to substantiate his son's uh, suggestion because later on in the Torah, even though we're near the end of the Torah already, but we're going to find in Parshas Vayelech the, the portion of Hakhel. Hakhel is the mitzvah, it's the 612th mitzvah in the Torah, the mitzvah gathering together the whole nation um, every seven years, it's actually Sukkot's time, in the year following the Shemitah year. And the king, 
reads, it says the Torah kol ha-Torah, but it doesn't, tikras ha-Torah hazos. But the Mishnah explains that even though the Torah uses those words, tikras ha-Torah hazos, read this law, it does not mean the entirety of the Torah. It refers to certain passages in the book of Dvarim, certain selections from the book of Dvarim. And so it could well be that here too, even though the Torah says kol ha-Torah, ksaftem, again, ksaftem is kol divrei ha-Torah, it means and if add something further as well, I hope you can follow the logic here. Why the idea of writing the entire Torah, in addition to the practical uh, quandary, even if it's done in a miraculous way, which baffles us. In addition to that, it says that the Torah was actually translated into 70 languages. Excuse me. That these stones were, had the Torah translated into 70 languages. Now, again, whether it means that literally or something else, what need would there be to render the entire Torah into 70 languages? The nations of the world do not have, uh, let's say, uh, uh, it's not incumbent upon them to keep the Torah in its entirety, or even for that matter, to be aware of the Torah. It is true that over the centuries, the Torah has had an enormous impact on mankind, and no doubt that is part of the divine plan. I, I think that is certainly clear. But at this early, early stage in Jewish history, would there have been some purpose to rendering, I'm sure there would be a purpose, but let's think logically, it's difficult to understand what the purpose could be to render the entire Torah into 70 languages for the benefit of 70 foreign cultures. But according to his suggestion, that it means the essence of the Torah. So here we have principles which are relevant to all mankind, belief in God, refutation of idolatry, polytheism, or according to his other suggestion, uh, the three paragraphs of the Shema. There you have the essential teachings of the Torah, the oneness of God, the love of God, reward and punishment, commandments of the Torah. Even if we just speak about the seven Noahide laws. So there is harva onish, reward and punishment that is very relevant to them as well. So according to this suggestion, um, at the level of logic, we can appreciate firstly how it was achievable because we're talking here about only uh, a certain number of verses rather than you know five entire books, but also we can appreciate the benefit of it, not only for the Jewish people, but for the rest of the, of the nations of the world as well. Okay, this is a suggestion that in which the word call, in order to give it a more rationalistic interpretation, is rendered as klal, as I say, the headlines of the Torah or the essence of the Torah that can be distilled into, in some cases, a few psukim. Finally, he asks a question which um, I had thought of, perhaps you've thought of it as well, but of course he formulates it in a much more compelling way. So if you look with me a little bit further, in Pasuk Yud Dalet, verse 14, in the same chapter, if you're with me in the uh, Stone Chumash's page 1074. So Pasuk Yud Dalet, uh, The Leviim responded and they said, El kol ish Israel to all of the men of Israel, kol ram. Now kol ram is rendered here by the art scroll in a loud voice, kol ram. Uh, you may know that in uh, uh, modern Hebrew, a uh, ramkol is a loudspeaker, an amplifier. 
That's ram call. Call ram. Ram really means high. Um, like ram venisa. Uh, romumut. Ram means high. Givat ram. Uh, so, but call, call ram in a high voice, in a loud voice. Fine. Doesn't mean high like in the octaves. It means high in the sense of loud. Except which I certainly was kind of conscious that it's a term which has given rise to the modern Hebrew ram kol. It's not such a common term, though, kol ram, because, and here's where Ksav Kabbalah goes a lot further than Rashi Simon, he says that it says in Tanakh 20 times kol gadol, kol gadol. He says approximately 20 times we find in Tanakh kol gadol. Kol ram we find only once. Why does it say here kol ram? And in so many other places, it says kol gadol in a great voice. Kol gadol, Veloyasaf, it says by Matan Torah. Kol gadol, we have 20 times. Kol ram only once. So he explains that gadol, large or great or sort of substantive, is used for something which is tall as well as something which is wide. So uh, you know, a, a flood, a great flood, doesn't uh, extend so much to the height, but to the to the extent of the horizontal. So, if the Mississippi River floods, then you can, uh, you know, it extends, it bursts its its um, uh, banks, and uh, you know, can be uh, swamp farmland for acres and acres, miles around. Many years ago, uh, our family was uh, in the United States, or so I think we flew to to the United States or across across the USA. And I remember looking down, it was in a summer when they had terrible flooding in the uh, much of the United States. And um, I remember looking down at the Mississippi River and it was enormous because it was spreading for miles on each side. Uh, so that's the nature of Gadol. But it can be tall as well. You can have a mountain, which is a great mountain, uh, a building, which is a great building, a person who is uh, Gadol, it can be horizontal or vertical. Ram means only vertical. Ram is tall. It doesn't mean wide. It only means tall. So kol gadol, kol ram actually doesn't really make that much sense because especially in this instance or generally a voice or a noise which is heard, one doesn't hear it in a vertical sense of greatness. One experiences it, if it's a loud noise, you can hear it from a hundred paces or a hundred meters or or a mile or however far it may be, and even a lot more, depending on, on Kol Gadol. So he says, why does the Torah here say Kol Ram? So as we've seen, the word Ram tall doesn't really fit that well so much for the idea of call of the voice. So he says the following. The word call here doesn't just mean the sound or the noise or the voice. It refers to the content. And we have a famous example of this where it says, uh, Hashem says to Avram uh, about Sarah, Shema Bekola, listen to her voice. Rashi says to the cold nevua, to the voice of prophecy. It doesn't just mean to hear like you say a person has a melodious voice, has a loud voice, has a strong voice, has a soft voice, has a, um, a certain accent. That's the call. That's the, the, the sound or the voice. But it means not only that, it also means the content. When it says here, call ram, it means what they had to say was exalted. 
The word ram means romamus hamaalavachashivas. It's the loftiness, it's the exaltedness of what they had to say. And he says that the, that the um to, the halacha states that this um this declaration on the part of the Levium that the Torah lays out in the following verses must be recited in Hebrew. Now, I'm sure it's true that that was natural for them. Well, having said that, they were not that far, that long out of Egypt. So perhaps uh, Egypt was still their natural mother tongue, even though it was maybe the next generation. But even so, they may have been the younger people who were before the age of 20 uh, initially, and therefore they still survive. But my point is that uh, the halacha is that this must be said in Hebrew, and certain other passages also must be said specifically in the Hebrew language. Says Ksav Kabbalah that the Hebrew language, the, the Lashon HaKodesh, is called a kol ram, an exalted language, because it has such depth, such, uh, excuse the pun, it has uh, the profundity, it has the nuance, it has the, even like Roshe Tevos and Gematria and Sirufim, it is a holy language, it's the language in which the world was created, language of the Torah, so when it says called Ram, it means that the language itself is exalted. Furthermore, it says Va'anu Halavim Va'amu, Va'anu is a notable expression because usually la anot means to respond, to reply. But he shows, Xavier Kabbalah shows how the word aniya, to respond, does not only mean like that to reply, but it, because very often, like here, it's not at all clear what they're responding to. They're not in a dialogue or a conversation. The Levim, it says here in the art scroll, the Levim shall speak up. And say, because they're not replying really. So Ksavah Kabbalah explains that the word la'anot, anuva amru, relates to the word, uh, it, it's a concept of gilui, of, of um, like um, pronouncing, exposing, publicizing, revealing something. He says the word oneh, is related to the word ayin. Ayin means I. Like we find hakadeshahi ba'inayim, where Yehuda was asking, what happened to the harlot who was here on the crossroads? Because she positions herself in a public space. If you remember last week, we said the word kadesha is a woman who, a, a a harlot who plies her trade openly. She touts for business in the public square. Hakadeshahi ba'inayim. So, or he says, va'ansabi tzidkasi. Yaakov said, my righteousness will speak up on my behalf. So he says that anu. here it says va'anu halavim. It's related to the word ayin, something which is visible, something which is uh, uh, like um, uh, in, in the open, even something which is public, because uh, they are saying something which is subject to scrutiny, subject to analysis. Like we say, he even explains, may God answer you on, on your day of distress. Ya'ancha, 
uh, it doesn't mean that God is replying necessarily, but rather the person uh, seeks that Hashem will be attentive towards him, will take an interest in him, will take notice of his tsara, of his distress. It doesn't just mean God will answer you or reply to you. It means God will uh, note, will be attentive to your distress. So it will be Hashem will be attentive to you in your time of need. It's as if we say God will place His eye uh, uh, upon you, and similarly we say Anuva uh, Amru. The people uh, responded with the awareness of concentration and intent. So to summarize, we've seen tonight Hashkifa means to gaze with care and with scrutiny. And that's why most of the time it's associated with uh, um, uh, a judgmental experience, which has frequently unpleasant implications. But here, when it comes to Matnosaniyim, so then the more one scrutinizes, the more beneficence there is. Then we said, as called divrei hatorah hazos, so we suggested it means klal divrei hatorah hazos, the essence of the Torah, and finally called ram. Even though in modern Hebrew ram kol is a loudspeaker, but really, according to this analysis, when it says they speak kol ram, they spoke with exalted language. Their message was exalted, and that is what is what they had to say. So thank you to everyone. I wish you good Shabbos. Uh, we have this coming Matsai Shabbos uh, at the Kesher Kumzitz, the late night Kumzitz. Join us please at 10.45. It's for men and for women, followed by Slichos at 11.30. So it's a way to enter the penitential season in a spirit of of uh, joy, a spirit of achdus, a spirit of dveikus, and uh, we'll have uh, some refreshments as well. So please join us uh, for that. And our Shabbos program, we're doing um, uh, leaving this world and entering the next. It's not quite as dire as it sounds. Kisavol ha'aret. So please join us for uh, Shabbos at Kesher. And thank you again to everyone. And um, we're saying uh, farewell. I'm going to continue my studies of Ksav Kabbalah, of course, till we finish the Torah. But the next week we'll have uh, Rosh Hashanah on my mind. Please join us at the same time. The following week, Yom Kippur, the following week, Sukkot. I wish everyone a lovely Shabbos. Wonderful Shabbos. Thank you. Thank you. Who's your friend for next year? Uh, he has yet to be disclosed. You have to come to find out. <laughs> Keep Thank in you. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Good Shabbos. Shabbos.